Welcome to the Cosmosphere Podcast, Episode 5, Pluto Palooza. I'm your host, John Molnix, and I'm a volunteer here at the Cosmosphere. You can catch me on this podcast and also on my daily podcast, The Space Shot. We would love if you could leave a review on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can help spread the word about the incredible work that's done at the Cosmosphere simply by leaving a review for the podcast. On the first Wednesday of each month, we dive into a new topic. This month, I sat down with Kelsey Singer and Joel Parker to talk about the New Horizons mission to Pluto and beyond. We'll also hear from Carla Stanfield about what's happening at the Cosmosphere this February. I've got one piece of news that you probably have heard of by now, but on the off chance you haven't somehow, SpaceX successfully launched the test flight of their Falcon Heavy rocket on February 6th. If you've yet to see the launch, check out the link in the show notes to see the incredible video. I visited with Joel Parker and Kelsey Singer at the Southwest Research Institute this last month. The setting for our conversation was at the Tombaugh Science Operations Center, which is located in Boulder, Colorado. I hope to have Kelsey and Joel on the podcast again in the future, and want to thank both of them again for coming on the podcast. Now, here's our conversation about New Horizons, Pluto, and beyond into the Kuiper Belt. Today, I'm talking with Kelsey Singer and Joel Parker. Thank you guys for joining the podcast. Thank you for inviting us. So we're going to talk a little bit about your background. And for those of you that might not know, what exactly do you guys do here for the New Horizons mission? Well, um, I have several main roles. One of them is doing geology and geophysics research with the data that we get back from the spacecraft. And then the other one is planning for future observations that we're going to make with the spacecraft. Okay. And Joel? And like Kelsey, I wear a few different hats. Uh, I am the uh, project manager for one of the instruments called ALICE. It's an ultraviolet spectrograph. I'm also a uh, co-investigator on the science team, and I'm also an assistant project scientist on it. And they're all just titles, but they all have their specific responsibilities. That's pretty cool. You get to play around with a lot of different stuff. I do. That's good. So what got both of you interested in space and in science? Kelsey, we'll start with you. Um, Well, actually, I, I was interested in a lot of subjects when I was a kid. I think, like a lot of kids, I liked dinosaurs and planets and all those things. And um, then I just kind of kept doing astronomy. I did uh, research when I was early in my undergrad, and so that definitely got me hooked. Um, and then I did a major in astronomy, and I went on to do planetary science more specifically for my graduate work. For my graduate work, mm-hmm. I worked on the icy moons of Jupiter and Saturn. Okay. And so I did a lot of icy geology. Um, the ice in the outer solar system really acts like rock. So you can apply a lot of the same geological principles that we do on Earth to um, icy places in the outer solar system. And that's what was set me up for working on New Horizons and looking at Pluto, which has an icy surface. 
I, cool. you know, I think that's a good point. A lot of people in astronomy actually get there from different directions, whether it's geology or biology these days, mm-hmm. chemistry, uh, atmospheric science. And I actually was a stellar astronomer studying massive stars through grad school and my first postdocs before I got pulled into the solar <laughs> system. I never really thought of astronomy as a job. I wanted to be an astronaut, <laughs> you know, and, and in my mind, they were probably all the same thing, right? Um, I also said I wanted to be a doctor because my dad was a doctor, but really I wanted to be an astronaut. <laughs> and um, I, I never really thought about being a scientist, but I liked doing, you know, math puzzles when I was a kid and things like that. And, uh, and so I just thought that was cool. And then when I went to college, I did physics because physics was like doing puzzles. Uh, and then I started taking astronomy classes and I realized, oh, this is pretty cool, you know. So I got actually a double physics and astronomy degree in undergrad. And then I was looking at grad schools and I was initially still thinking physics like plasma physics or something like that. But I really liked the astronomy departments. They were smaller, they were more personal. Um, And astronomy had more of a uh, smaller culture feeling, like you could know everyone in the field. And it was very international too, and I liked that a lot. So I went in to be an astronomy major, uh, got my PhD, Uh, I also, as an undergrad, worked as an intern a few tours uh, at NASA down in Houston, and that kind of satisfied some of my, I want to be an astronaut, or at least close to being an (laughs) astronaut needs as a kid, right? And uh, that that was great. And that really actually got me involved in uh, wanting to think about the idea of being, doing missions. And uh, the shuttle was just starting at that time. I ended up working on some projects that flew on the shuttle. So all of that kind of mushed together. Very cool. So, I mean, there's, there's lots of different paths to the same destination. I think that's probably good for experiences for everybody because you bring in wealth of knowledge from other disciplines. So, and I think there are a lot of good paths out of the discipline as well. Uh, you don't have to be a professor. You don't have to go to grad school with the only path is a tenure track position or you've failed. Uh, Astronomy really has some very broad application. We're all programmers, you know, and uh, problem solvers. And that can be really applied in a lot of areas outside of astronomy. I totally agree. So there's hope for a political science major, me then? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Very good. Southwest Research Institute, like how does that just all fit together? Because that's something that I probably not a lot of people know, like how your, your guys' work fits in with NASA, with J. Like, could you just talk about the organization for that? Sure, I'll, I'll start okay. with that. Yeah, go for it, okay. um, the, the PI of New Horizons is Alan Stern, and he has been trying to get this mission launched for decades. He and a small group of Plutophiles uh, knew that getting a mission to Pluto was very important. And it just took a lot of convincing of NASA and 
funding to get that mission going. And there were a lot of setbacks and they were very persistent and they made it happen. And I think now having flown by Pluto, the, the proof is it really was a very valuable thing. So uh, Alan spearheaded it uh, and he's here at the Southwest Research Institute's Boulder office, which has been here for 22 years. So uh, it's been going on for longer than that but uh, many of us, as we came here over time, I, I came here at the beginning 22 years ago, uh, got involved and pulled in to working on New Horizons in one way or another. Yeah, I'm a, kind, not exactly on the opposite end, but I came uh, onto the mission right before it was about to get to Pluto. Okay. I started one year before the encounter um, as a postdoctoral researcher right after I finished my graduate work. And um, it was, it was great to be able to jump on right before we got there, but it's also nice getting to see some of the, a little bit of the other side of it now um, to plan the observations and things before we get to our next target, yeah, um, MU69. And so I didn't see any of that <laughs> when, before we got yeah, to you Pluto. You came in, it's like, hey, we're flying by <laughs> yeah, Pluto. You yeah, want to like, come? Oh, perfect, great. <laughs> I'd love to. So yeah, that was a really great opportunity for me. But it's also nice to see a little bit of the other side too, the the preparation for for the encounter. Let's talk a little bit about some of your personal favorite parts of the mission. Like what's something that, you know, it could be something that everybody knows or it could be a smaller, less known discovery, something that just speaks to you guys personally. This is something that people may have seen, but a feature that I'm working on on Pluto is a, a potentially a cryovolcano, which just means that instead of um, having molten rock, um, it potentially was made out of molten ice. Um, and this would be mostly water ice, like we're familiar with on Earth, um, but because most of the outer one-third of Pluto is made out of water ice, a lot of the geology we see on the surface is, is from that ice or from other types of ices. Um, and so it's just really interesting to see all the um, weird features that we get out of these ices on the surface. And is that something that you guys expect to find farther out into the Kuiper Belt then too? Or is that something that's going to be more unique to Pluto then? That's a good question. We've been speculating about that. There's a few other large bodies um, in the Kuiper Belt. And so there's potential for those bodies as well to have these unique features or even other features that we've never thought of. Yeah, like ice volcanoes. Who would have thought right. a cryo well, Yeah, we, we definitely did not expect to find that. Um, and also it looks like it's somewhat of a younger feature. And so that's a mystery that we're still trying to uh, um, interpret is how you could get activity later in Pluto's history because we didn't expect to see that. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. The, the biggest surprise for me, and I'm not a geologist, and yet I was very surprised at how geologically active Pluto is and how young some of the surface yeah. is. I, you know, I had in my mind, oh, it's out there in the far reaches of the solar system. It's cold. It's dead. It's been pummeled, <laughs> you know, and it's going to be cratered. And uh, we knew it was covered with ices and that it had these seasons from ground and Hubble-based observations. So we knew it had some differences on the surface, but I personally was not prepared for how active it is having this huge plane of nitrogen ice with no 
craters on it yep. means it's extremely young. Um, and maybe this, you know, nitrogen ice is kind of uh, bubbling a little bit in a ways. You know, it's turning over and it's a very young surface right next to other regions that are cratered and pummeled and old. And the volcanoes. Yeah. There's just so much going on on such a small object. It's really amazing. And really, how do you keep a small distant body that's not orbiting around a larger body that can kind of uh, gravitationally torque it. How do you keep a body like that active? It's, yeah, we're basically, it's a fun thing to think about because we didn't have any ideas about this before we got there. So now we just have to start from yeah. scratch with like, <laughs> what are the possibilities? And that's basically why we go and do these kind of missions because um, you, that's what you want to find is the things you didn't already know. Yeah. Um, and so it's really changing our view of how these smaller bodies in the outer solar system can operate. Well, and I remember as, as New Horizons approached Pluto, just seeing those pictures each day, like the, the higher and higher detail, it just was remarkable as yeah. the spacecraft approached. So I'm sure you guys were probably a little bit giddy as, yeah. was, as that yeah. was happening. Busy and giddy. <laughs> Both. I'm, I'm not sure if I was too busy to be giddy or too, you know. But. I was pretty <clears throat> giddy, I think. <laughs> but, yeah, some, uh, one thing I uh, think about from getting the images back, kind of some of them we got back one at a time, or we'd get one piece of uh, an image sequence back, and each piece had something different in it. Mm -hmm. And so that mm -hmm. was really interesting because you're like, oh, if we'd only gotten this piece, we'd have no idea this other really weird feature was here. That's right. And so that was also very interesting and cool. And we've only seen about 40% of Pluto well. So you can only imagine what must be yeah. on, on the rest of Pluto. I mean, we were able to get images, you know, Pluto has a, about a six and a half day rotation period. So as we were approaching, we were able to observe all the different sides of Pluto that were illuminated. But only during the closest approach were we able to get those really high yeah. resolution images. Yeah. And so and that was mostly on the side opposite of where the moon Charon orbits. And so there's another half we want to see in higher detail. <laughs> yep. And as a member of the public, I definitely want to see that other <laughs> yeah. side too. You mentioned earlier when we were um, first talking about ALICE, the spectrograph. Mm -hmm. That's been on other missions as well, not just New Horizons. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, our goal is to have ALICEs throughout the universe. <laughs> um, ALICE is a small shoebox-sized telescope that's a spectrograph. So what that means is it breaks the light up into a rainbow. It just so happens this looks in the ultraviolet, so it makes an ultraviolet rainbow. And uh, every atom and molecule has a unique fingerprint that appears in this spectrum. Uh, so we can look at, for instance, the gas of the atmosphere around Pluto and see what it's made of. We can look at the reflected light off the surface and get an idea there too. It's the same thing is done in the infrared with other instruments that we have as well. It's just in every wavelength region there are some unique atoms or molecules. So you like to have different instruments looking at these different regions that tell you different things about what you're looking at. So the first ALICE that flew 
was on the mission Rosetta, which flew to and landed on a comet. Alice didn't land on the comet. There was a lander, <laughs> but we also had an orbiter that orbited around for two years. Mm -hmm. And we observed the comet as it turned on and spewed out all its stuff and uh, looked at what the atmosphere of the comet was. We have another Alice-type instrument that's orbiting around the moon, looking in permanently shadowed regions for water. We have the one on New Horizons. We have ones at and going to Jupiter. Uh, there, it's just great because it's small. Like I said, it's about the size of a shoebox. It uses four to six watts of power, which is less than a night light That's to cool. run the whole instrument. Wow. All of these instruments on New Horizons had to be miniaturized in low power because that's the name of the game. Yeah. So Alice has been a really wonderful instrument to work with and has really brought back a lot of interesting data. You know, it's interesting because <clears throat> to develop something for a spacecraft, it has to be space rated. So it's kind of old technology that you know is reliable enough to work in space. So you're taking technology that is, you know, maybe a couple decades yeah. old. There was a nice comparison I saw of someone comparing an iPhone to the New Horizons spacecraft as far as memory is concerned right. and things like that. And you know, in some respects, it's fairly comparable, uh, but it's space qualified, mm -hmm. and it's ultra miniaturized. It has to be low mass because mass is money when you're talking the space business. Low power. And so you're taking this technology that may be a few years old, but really tweaking it and miniaturizing it as best you can. And uh, it's very impressive what the engineers are able to do. Let's shift gears a little bit to MU-69. That's going to be the next encounter out in the Kuiper Belt. For those of us who don't know exactly what the Kuiper Belt is, where it starts, can you talk a little bit about the Kuiper Belt? Because, I mean, it is way out there. Nothing. I mean, nothing's really ever going to imaged it in this detail before New Horizons. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about MU-69. Sure. Um, so the Kuiper Belt really starts past Neptune, and Pluto is kind of the gateway to the Kuiper Belt. And um, we flew by Pluto, and we just kept on going into the rest of the Kuiper Belt. Um, and so this next object that we're going to um, come to is considerably farther away from the sun. Um, so Pluto was at uh, the distance between the Earth and the sun times 33. So it was 33 times farther away from the sun than the Earth is. And this next object is 44 times farther away. So it gives you an idea of just how far out this object is. And it's a smaller object. Um, it's probably about 30 kilometers across. Um, it may have more than one kind of lobe on it. It may be more than one object. It may be two objects orbiting each other. Um, we, we are not sure yet. You can, you can think of the Kuiper Belt as kind of the leftover debris from the formation of the solar system. You're able to form all these planets, but all the stuff that didn't quite get to collide and mix together and make a planet you can think of like a pancake that just kind of went out for some distance further. And there's some discussion about kind of where the edge of this Kuiper Belt is, but you can think of these Kuiper Belt objects as kind of the leftover debris from the solar system, icy bits that were kept in cold storage 
until we had a chance to take a look at them. And uh, this object that we're flying by next with New Horizons is particularly interesting because it's a part of the Kuiper Belt we call the Cold Classical Kuiper Belt. And these are objects that we think were formed there now. A lot of other objects may have gotten stirred up as the solar system formed, but we think these are pretty much where they originally formed and haven't been modified by too much, by collisions or getting, you know, pushed around by Jupiter or Neptune or something like that. So it's possible that MU69 might be the most pristine object ever visited by a spacecraft. We'll rejoin Kelsey and Joel here in just a bit, but now we've got a quick news update for the Cosmosphere with Carla. Today I'm talking with Carla Stanfield. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me again. So February is a little bit shorter of a month, but we're still have got a lot of stuff packed into that 28 days. Can you tell me a little bit about what's going on? We sure do, John. We have packed it full. So the first exciting thing is that we will have NASA scientists on hand from the New Horizons missions, uh, four, I believe, to be precise, to have uh, our first ever Pluto Palooza celebration. So we'll have several events on the 14th and 15th that are open and free to the public. Uh, the first being on the 14th, Valentine's Day, we are inviting the public to come in hear personal stories and see stunning photos from that New Horizons mission. Um, and then the reason we're having it on Valentine's Day is because there is a giant heart on Pluto that New Horizons captured through some imagery. It's part of the topography of Pluto, and the scientists are going to be explaining that how um, how the dwarf planet is still geologically active, even though it is so far from the sun. And like I said, just showing some amazing pictures and telling their own personal stories from the mission. Very cool. Yeah, I talked with Joel and Kelsey, and I'm kind of bummed that I won't be able to come out to Pluto Palooza this, <laughs> this month. Well, we will definitely miss having you there, too. So let's let's talk a little bit more about what's going on in February then. It's besides Pluto Palooza, what else is going on? Actually there's a couple more events for Pluto Palooza. Our Coffee at the Cosmo, which is every third Thursday from nine to ten this month, it will be centered on Pluto Palooza. And during that presentation, the attendees will actually have the time to speak one-on-one -on -one with those scientists. Um, and the last event that we have that's open and free to the public is called Starry Night. It's something we try to do quarterly. Um, it's a stargazing opportunity. This time, though, not only will you have our Cosmosphere space science educators on hand and the Cosmosphere equipment to use, but you'll be able to interact with those scientists, view the stars, look at the planets, talk with them, um, and yeah, it should be a really exciting night. That is Thursday the 15th from 7 to 9 at Hobart Getter Field down in Finn Park. That sounds really cool. It should be really, really great. 
I mean, Carlo, there's also some member events um, for people that aren't members of the Cosmosphere just yet. Here's maybe a little taste of all the cool members-only events that are available at the Cosmosphere. Sure. Being a member at the Cosmosphere definitely comes with its perks. There are several special events already planned in February. The first is part of Pluto Palooza will have a members-only reception uh, just before that large public presentation on the 14th, we are inviting our members to have some one-on-one mingle time with the scientists. Uh, there will be a little extra because it is Valentine's Day. We'll have some wine and some chocolate, and um, there will be extra images that won't be part of the presentation that those folks will be able to view. And then the other special members-only event that we have going on happens the 23rd to the 25th they get to view our new documentary, which is called America's Musical Journey, um, that weekend before we open it to the public. That sounds really cool. So there's there's still time to become a member before Pluto Palooza. If that you know, if you want to be able to get out there for a fun date night with uh, you know chocolate and wine, there's still time. Absolutely, you can do that on our website. Um, through the membership link at the top of that page, or you can call Marla Erickson. She is our membership coordinator, and her direct line is 620-665-9320. Perfect. Well, Carla, thanks for coming back on. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, John. Let's pick our conversation back up with Kelsey and Joel. We were talking about the Kuiper Belt and the extremely pristine nature of a lot of the materials that are that far out in our solar system. So it's going to be like just peering back into what the solar system was like when it was forming. Four and a half billion years ago. That's what we're hoping for. Mm-hmm. That's so cool. So something that can help you get an idea of the relative distances is how long it takes for light to travel from the Earth to any object in the solar system. And it takes about like 8 to 14 minutes to get to Mars, depending on where the Earth and Mars are. Mm -hmm. And to get to Pluto, it was four and a half hours at the time the spacecraft flew by. That's a lot longer. And by the time we get to MU69, it's going to be about six hours and 15 minutes. So it gives you an idea of how much farther it is. Yeah, traveling at the speed of light. That's a slow conversation. <laughs> no doubt. Hello? And then you have to wait 12 hours. Right, for it to go there and come back. <laughs> to ha- say, have the, hi, how are you? <laughs> yeah, so as you can imagine, we have to plan all the observations in advance. You can't control the spacecraft like with a joystick mm-hmm. or something like that. So um, every the spacecraft knows what it's supposed to do when it gets to the object. So that's where the programming that everybody really exactly. knows how to do comes in. You're you're planning that down to the millisecond probably it's it's pretty small increments but yeah um i don't think they do any observation for less than a second yeah okay. seconds okay. is are pretty much the yeah yeah tip. okay but that's you know still seconds is yeah. enough planning to do for you know a whole encounter and you have to make i mean you have to make sure you get it right the first time because you're flying by at you know over 14 kilometers per second over 31 thousand miles an hour and uh you only get the one chance and you can't go oops oh i meant to do this (laughs) so you have to plan very carefully for both what you expect with enough variation in the plan for what you don't expect you know you 
is there, like Kelsey was saying, is there another or more than another satellite around this body? Well, you want to be sure that you do observations over a large enough area to catch those extra objects. It may come back blank sky, but if there's another object there, this is your one chance to see it. At what point in the approach can you not change any of the commands? The basic plan is yeah. set many, many months in advance. Uh, we have scheduled in the plan time shifts where we can take like the central chunk and kind of move it forward or back as we approach and get a better idea of exactly where the object is so we can shift kind of a do a, a growth shift and fine tune. Uh, we do have a few retargetable periods uh, but the the last adjustments we can make to trajectory and any things like that are uh, I want to say a month weeks for sure but yeah there there's a, a final trajectory correction that can be within days mm -hmm. but we do have our main set of observations as Joel was talking about mm -hmm. but we make two copies of that one for a closer flyby and one for a farther flyby. Um, so the farther one we call the alternate and the closer one is our prime. And we hope that we'll do the prime because we'll get much higher resolution images. Okay. Um, but we do plan, um, since everything has to be planned in advance, we plan two and we make sure they're um, fully vetted and everything's perfect in those two plans. And then if we need to, we can choose the alternate if we see some kind of hazard to the spacecraft closer in in the system. A hazard being a ring, you know, dust, a yeah. little piece of dust can be the end of your spacecraft or something else. The prime trajectory that Kelsey was talking about, the closest approach is 3,500 kilometers, the, which is much closer than Pluto by yeah. a factor of uh, almost four. The alternate trajectory closest approach is 10,000 kilometers, which is still closer than we flew by Pluto. So even if we fly our alternate trajectory, we're going to get higher resolution images than we got at Pluto. Smaller than Pluto, though, so we'll have fewer total number of pixels on it. So that's why you're really wanting to get up close with that prime flyby plan. Mm -hmm. Definitely. We're in hibernation, right? Okay. I always say we. <laughs> I know, right? The that spacecraft. Works. We, we, we are the spacecraft, <laughs> you know? It's the royal we in yes. some way. Ironically, we're working a lot harder <laughs> That's right. the spacecraft right the now. The spacecraft <laughs> is just hibernating. It's, yeah. a, it's sleeping and every now and then gives a little beacon saying, I'm okay. Uh, and we're furiously planning. Uh, but in um, August, September, we will come out of hibernation and uh, we will eventually go into what's called three-axis mode, where we then can do specific pointing rather than spin-stabilized. And uh, certainly when we're doing the flyby, that's all three-axis because we have all this fine-tuning specific pointing we need to do. How has that changed from like the Voyager missions or even... Cassini, like how has the accuracy changed for New Horizons, or is it going to be comparable? The pointing accuracy? Yeah, just in terms of that. Not having been on those other missions or looked at this, I don't okay. know what the 
pointing accuracy is, but certainly, you know, uh, for, you know, for Voyager, they were flying by fast and they worked, it's all the same math, you know, working out how fast you need to rotate the spacecraft so you don't blur the image during periods of when you're taking images. Um, what the accuracy is, you know, they, you have gyros and you have all sorts of ways of being able to tell what the attitude is and uh, you can use uh, on different spacecraft, you can have reaction wheels, you can have thrusters, different ways of keeping the stability. And, uh, you know, it was, all you need is pointing accuracy that is good enough for the camera that you're using. Okay. Yeah, I almost wonder if it's more in to almost the, the knowledge of the orbit of the spacecraft mm-hmm. and the orbits mm-hmm. of even the planets and the moons right. that Voyager was imaging um, versus our knowledge of the orbit of Pluto um, and the orbit of MU69, which we're working on. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, I almost wonder if it's, if it's more on the side of not so much the location of the camera with respect to the rest of the spacecraft, but maybe... The location of the whole spacecraft with respect to the body that it's imaging. It should mention that so the object we're flying by on New Year's yay, yay <laughs> uh, is called 2014 MU69. Uh, that kind of license plate number, the 2014 <laughs> indicates the year it was mm-hmm. discovered. And it was discovered with a uh, an amazing effort with the Hubble Space Telescope and members of the New Horizons team. And usually you need many, many, many years to get an accurate orbit of these objects out in the distant solar system. We didn't have many, many, many years to plan this. So we had to really get the orbit and position of the object to very high precision very quickly. And I think it it certainly is the case that this is the most accurately known in the shortest amount of time of any object in the outer solar system. And uh, even then, there's still significant enough uncertainty that we have to have that slop time I was talking about. So once the object can be seen from the spacecraft, we can adjust that a little bit. But the the main problem is you can kind of tell as you're approaching kind of left and right where the object is, but close or far away along your flight path, you don't. It just looks like a point of light. You don't really have a clear idea along the flight path of where the object is. So it's really that downtrack uncertainty that is your major uncertainty that you have to plan for. So you can imagine you're driving down a highway in a car and there's one tree you want to take a picture of and you're not quite sure where that tree is, but you know you're going to pass it within the next 10 minutes. If you really want to take a picture of that tree, you just start taking pictures at the beginning of the 10 minute span (laughs) And then in one of those pictures, you'll have the tree. All the other pictures, you, you'll just have a nice field in the background. That's kind of an idea of what we're doing for this downtrack uncertainty in the planning. 
I've never heard it described that way. That is, that <laughs> I, makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I actually often think <clears throat> of driving for some reason. I think it's because you you're often looking down the road and it's harder to tell, you that's know, right. even where the cars are coming at you yep. versus you know a car that's on a par- uh, perpendicular street. That's right. Um, how far away they are and how fast they're coming at you. <laughs> mm-hmm. That is so cool. That just kind of blew my mind there a little bit. <laughs> oh, good. That's our job. <laughs> <laughs> Before our conversation ended, Kelsey shared one more piece about how they measure objects that are this far out in our solar system. So it's a, an astronomical event called an occultation, and it's similar in a lot of ways to an eclipse, um, where you have to have the objects in a, the right alignment. Um, and But in this case, instead of, say, having the moon go between the Earth and the sun, we are looking at the object that we're going to, MU69, go between the Earth and a star. So it's very similar in the in the way that basically um, you wouldn't be able to see any you know dimming of the light or anything like that because MU69 is so far away and the star is nothing like the sun in the sky. Obviously, the star is just a point, um, but it does basically cast a shadow, quote unquote, <laughs> um, onto the Earth from the object passing in front of the star. So it's similar to an eclipse where you have to go to the right place on the Earth to be able to observe this event. Um, some, an example I sometimes give is if you like hold your arm out with a fist and you pick a light in the room, you would have to move your head around to get your fist to block the light. It's the same kind of thing. You have to be in the right spot on the Earth to see MU69 go in front of the star. Um, but the reason we like to do this is because we can see the star blink out and um, if we see how long the star blinks out for, that can tell us about the size of the object because that's how long we know the relative motions of the two. And so we know how long it would take for the object to pass in front of the star. Um, so it, it does sound a little crazy because this object is so small and so far away. Um, but because of improved information about the position of the object that we got from the Hubble Space Telescope, and also, interestingly enough, um, you actually need to know the star positions really well. And we have more, more new information about that from um, the Gaia project. And that's something you can read more about if you want to. Um, but they improved the positions of the stars. And so we just got that information basically last year. And without both of those pieces of information, we wouldn't be able to be, do this kind of occultation for such a small object so far out in the solar system. So it's actually the first time we've ever done something like this. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it's always uh, really exciting to be part of a project where you're doing something that's doing something for the first time. Yeah, um, that's New Horizons. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah that's a lot so of things on New Horizons. Occultations <laughs> yeah. are an incredibly powerful tool. They can tell you about detail on a distant object that you would never be able to see with the best telescope you have on Earth. The atmosphere on Pluto was discovered by an occultation, Pluto passed in front of a star. If it didn't have an atmosphere, it'd be like a knife knife edge. The star would just blink out and then blink back. If there's an atmosphere, it quickly fades out rather than a sharp cutoff because the atmosphere absorbs a little of the light. So that's one way you can tell something about the atmosphere of a distant object that you wouldn't be able to see. Kelsey mentioned you can see the size of the object, but you can also refine the orbit and the position of the object because 
as it is the case with MU69, we didn't know exactly where that shadow was going to fall on the Earth because we didn't know the star position and the object position all that well. So the uncertainties is tens of kilometers at least. So you get all these little telescopes that you take out in the field and you put them along all these different positions where you think the shadow may cross. Some of them will see the shadow, some will see the, you know, the star blink out, and some won't. And you can use that information to not only get the size of the object, to, but to refine the orbit. So where is that going to be then? Where, where is that going to be observed from? Uh, yeah, so they we, already had one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we um, we last year we had a couple of opportunities. Okay. Um, so of course it just depends on whether there is a star that's going to be passing by um, the right angle to catch sure. to have the object go in front of it, and um, so we did two last year. Um, one was in Argentina and South Africa, and then the second opportunity we went to Argentina, um, more southern Argentina for. And um, so we, as Joel said, we, we went there, we scouted out sites to be able to put up telescopes. We had all the telescopes shipped. It's a pretty big operation. <laughs> we got a lot of help from local people, which we wouldn't have been able to, to do this job without that. And um, then we set up the telescopes about four or five kilometers apart, something like that. Um, and that way we were able to cover a big area in order to catch the object. Because how many telescopes? Was it 25? Something like yeah, that. Yeah, it was about 25. It was a pretty big wow. operation. Like 16 I said, inch telescopes yep. with GPS and all yep. the bells and whistles. This was, this was the first time we've done quite this type of operation where we bring a whole bunch of telescopes and space them um, so close to each other. And because we did that and we happened to catch the object on the second try, um, we actually got five telescopes that observed the star blinking out. And so that meant we saw, we got, actually got to see um, five different parts of the object. Um, and that's how we know that maybe it's um, an object with two lobes on it, or maybe it's two objects. And all of that information we got from this occultation campaign, you couldn't get that any other way. It's, a, it's very cool. And it's yeah. amazing. I mean, we're talking 16 centimeter or 16 In, inch. inch telescopes. You know, we're not talking Keck, you know, <laughs> multimeter telescopes doing science, getting the shape of an object 44 times further from the sun than the Earth is. Yeah, I have to say it was it was a pretty cool event. Um, I uh, haven't participated in an occultation before. This was yeah. my first one. So it's a pretty uh, fun occultation to have your first one <laughs> as your first I, one. <laughs> I've done occultation runs before. You travel around the world. You set up for a two-second observation, and it's cloudy. <laughs> yeah, we got really lucky. Oh, man. Yeah, no, we were very happy because we got we got lucky. There was a few scattered clouds, but mm -hmm. um, almost no one had them interfere with the observation. That's cool. I was in Beatrice for the eclipse, and it was rainy up to that point, and then it, like, cleared for a little bit. It was like, yay. <laughs> no, it's, it's the same. It's the exact thing. Yeah. same thing. You just go somewhere. Fingers you hope crossed. you get lucky. and It's the life. <laughs> If you're an observational astronomer in any way, you're uh, and uh, ground-based, you're just a victim of the weather, and maybe some ingenuity if you have mobile telescopes and you have a good prediction. That's right. 
Yeah, and when they went to South Africa for the first opportunity, um, they saw that there was a, uh, you know, a fair number of clouds moving into the area they were originally going to be in. So about half the telescopes um, threw everything in the back of their trucks and drove for three, four hours, something like that, to get to another area to try to um, you know, have more chance of catching the object without clouds. So it's, it's there's some kind of intense... Yeah, intense uh, driving experiences. (laughs) Kelsey has some great uh, images of the occultation run experience for uh, her presentation at the Cosmosphere. Very cool. I I wish I could be coming out for it. I can't come out for it, but Uh, I think we're going to be getting audio from the event at least. I'll be able to hear that part, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Well, thank you guys for taking the time today. Sure. I really Absolutely. appreciate it. I hope Thanks to have you. Thanks for doing this in yeah. your free time. Exactly. <laughs> when, you're, right. when you're not moving. And, uh, it's a little bit less stressful now. So okay. I, I hope I can have you guys on in the future. Yeah, that'd be great. No problemo. Yeah. I really enjoyed talking with Kelsey and Joel, and I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. Like Carla mentioned in the news section of this episode, be sure to check out a very unique date night on this Valentine's Day that's at the Cosmosphere. Thank you all for listening to the Cosmosphere podcast. Make sure you share and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a review on iTunes. Reviews are crucial to the success of podcasts, so we'd appreciate it if you could take a minute to leave a rating or review. Head to Cosmo.org to become a member of the Cosmosphere or to find out more information about the world-class education programs that are available for students and even adults. For the Cosmosphere, I'm John Molnix.